Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to explore the diversity of engaging online learning experiences. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Professor Kate Ames, Director of Learning Design and Education at CQ University Australia in Brisbane. I want to first start by thanking everyone who has rated and reviewed Lesson Impossible on iTunes. The podcast made it onto the US charts for the first time which means more people have the possibility of discovering it and being inspired by my amazing guests. So if you were one of those who rated and reviewed, thank you so very much. And if you haven't already, please consider doing so. As for this episode's guest, when I first started reading Kate Ames's blog and contacted her about a possible interview, distance and online education was a fairly niche topic. Since then, as the world has been attempting to slow the tide of COVID-19, this has become a more pressing issue. My hope is that listeners who are currently facing the reality of distance and online education being thrust upon them will feel more confident as they move forward, and that those who are listening in the future, where everything has hopefully gone back to normal, can be equally intrigued by Kate Ames's thoughtful practice. A quick note before we start, I had some technical difficulties at the beginning, where I sound like a robot trying to make a long-distance call to the future, which if you think about it, I actually was, because I was in the next day's morning in Australia. But don't worry, my voice soon went back to normal. I began my first overseas interview by asking Kate to describe the many hats that she wears. I'm a professor here at Central Queensland University and I run a unit called a learning design and innovation unit here. So our university is um, quite a complex institution. It's got 26 uh, delivery sites around Australia. We have both vocational education and higher education and we also do online and on-campus Uh, including international and domestic students here in Australia. And my area is really looking at um, new ways of teaching, particularly online. So we've developed a new sort of model for online postgraduate courses in particular, and then also supporting academic capability, you know, helping our teaching staff be better teachers. And you also teach a journalism course online yourself as well. Yes, I have been. Funnily enough, I'm just this term taking a break. I'm working actually now in a Master of Business Administration uh, leadership, which is one of our hyper-flexible courses. So I'm teaching uh, communication or I'm I'm assessing the students in communication. That's a a self-paced course. But yes, I've got a history of um, over a long period of time since about the mid-90s in teaching journalism and public relations. So in my other life, I'm a lieutenant colonel in the military part-time public affairs officer. So um, I've been a practitioner for as long as I've been an academic. So blending the both has been a part of my life. So I've been reading your blog posts uh, about online education and I've learned so much and I found that a lot of my assumptions about what online education was going to be are not what your program looks like and specifically looking at for instance the amount of time spent being online and you really advocate for having pdfs that people can have offline and not all 
not jumping from website to website to link to link constantly just because you can. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's because I've been a student and, you know, I have, and I still, I'm about to, you know, study one of the courses that we're putting online um, in July or hoping to, which is a Master of Educational Neuroscience. So, as a as a sort of like a lifelong learner i'm i'm really conscious that i'm not i'm not wanting to design everything just for me because there is so much diversity of how people learn out there but i am conscious of what i as a as a learner do and don't respond to and i figure well if there's one of me maybe there's a few more of me and <laughs> i've had moments of absolute hate uh, where I've thought I am never, ever, ever allowing one of my courses to look like this. And I can cite an example where I was running around an airport at six o'clock one Friday evening trying to find somewhere to upload my assignment because the entire website was, you know, you needed Wi-Fi. And just this stress that I had of trying to catch a plane, find Wi-Fi, upload this file that I'd been working on at night, and I just remember thinking, oh, this is just not taking into account anything and it it disengaged me from the learning I was really committed to the content that I was learning I really want I was totally passionate about the subject matter which in fact was was learning Um, and I remember thinking I wonder if they've trapped me in this hell to to feel this so that I'm learning what it feels like to be trapped in this hell (laughs) you know I just just remember thinking this, this is just this is just a nightmare. So uh, that's very much informed. We've now developed what we call hyperflexible postgraduate degrees, which really are entirely self-paced, you know, and it, it takes into consideration that, that, uh, that notion of the learner who actually doesn't need to necessarily engage with the teacher, but they really do want to engage with the concepts. They really want to be self-reflective. They don't need to do social group work with one another because we, they've got groups that they can work with outside of the classroom. Because I do, I get people going, oh, well, you need a teacher. Yeah, you do. You need a facilitator. But that facilitator is really a curator. They are someone who brings the best expertise to the table. So I'm not spending 12 hours looking for the best reading. They've done that for me. (laughs) So they're guiding me through these are the best readings. And now how about you apply that to your reflective practice? Just challenging what we understand about online learning. Now, as of this week, obviously, with the coronavirus, suddenly everybody is needing to be an expert in online learning. And that won't go anywhere anytime soon. That will, I think that will be a bit of a game changer for online, but there are some of us who've been doing it for a long, long time. I think my views would actually be quite consistent with a lot of people who have been doing it for a long, long time. And what we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, I suppose, particularly is people who've bought into online um, have either come, um, they might come in with a very instructional design focus where they're going in a quite a linear fashion or they might be uh, coming from a very social presence state focus where they actually want to be in the classroom. It's all about synchronous learning and how about how to get the um, student to be with me in class at the right time. So they've all got to be there at 9 o'clock. They've got to be there for an hour. You know, then their assignments are due at 3 o'clock and then I'll give them back at 5 o'clock. And I just don't think that there's a re- enough recognition of the diversity uh, that is appropriate, entirely appropriate for the students. I imagine, too, as someone who has studied and feels very passionate about distance learning, that Johnny-come-lately of, well, we're just going to port what we've been doing in classrooms right into this box of a computer, that must be fairly frustrating as well. I've sat back. It's really funny, Aviva. I've actually sat back pretty much. You know, we're busy enough at our institution. 
So what I'm saying to people, because I'm getting a lot of a lot of people going, oh my God, can you help? So what I'm saying to them is, look, you really do need to think about whether this is a, a long-term thing that you're going to do or whether really it's just at the moment a case of doing the best thing by your students in the immediate term and then adapting or considering your practice for that particular short term. I do suspect that there'll be some people who um, who are surprised at how student-centred really good online learning can be. Given the developments in, you know, things like Zoom technology or video conferencing technology, it's a lot easier to run a synchronous class where everybody is in the classroom together than it used to be even three or four years ago. And I'm saying to people, look, keep it pretty simple. Identify what your learner needs. Find a couple of tools if you're nervous about how to do it and then go on that basis because it's very easy to get overwhelmed by everybody everybody else's all singing or dancing, you know, a, all, augmented reality, virtual reality, platforms here, there and everywhere. We're on Facebook, Teams, you know, it's just it's an endless list. It's very easy to get overwhelmed, so we try to keep it pretty simple and just focus on that learning journey for the student, what's best for the student. If you could perhaps maybe walk me through, I'm a new teacher under your purview and I'm new to the idea of distance learning, but man, I'm enthusiastic about it. How would you coach me through getting away from the in-class mindset? Great question. Well, firstly, the first point there is that you're enthusiastic about it. So that's a worldview. And that, that is the biggest challenge for us, I think, is that there are people who say to me all the time, well, face-to-face is better. And my immediate response is, well, of course it is. It's easier, it's better, you have that interpersonal interaction. But if I took that view, that face-to-face is better, and then just gave up, well, then there's a whole heap of students who would not benefit from being taught really well by great educators. So that's just the first step, (laughs) is to be enthusiastic and think, okay, well, it might be difficult, but let's give this a crack. The second thing I would say to you is, what do you want your students to learn? How do you currently teach them? So let's have a look at what you're currently doing and what you want them to learn. Uh, We talk about the notion of equivalence, the idea that it's not equal, but it can be equivalent. So you might ask students to be giving um, on on in-class presentations, for example. There's no reason why you can't do that online. Very easy. Well, very easy. Um, It's not as difficult as many people think. And there's a range of tools that you can do that, ranging from um, a one-on-one presentation or a Viva via Zoom. And students really do get as nervous as they would in class or even, most simply, get someone to record it and then upload the video recording. So that's, you know, what do you want the students to learn? I find that students, uh, the staff can overcomplicate their classes And so converting to online requires you to really think very carefully about exactly what's really important. If it is particularly important that students work together collaboratively in a group, then it really does does need to be um, converted to or incorporated as a learning outcome and it needs to be assessed. Really thinking about what is important so that you can keep everything pretty simple means you probably will have to lose some stuff that you do in class you know so some do you do you really need them to do this do you really need them to to do that how might you do something um, or ask them to do something else that is actually ultimately more important so yeah I imagine too that the constraints of time unless you're doing a, a synchronous course when those fall away a lot of the things that we tend to do 
as filler because we know that this is only going to take 30 minutes and the class is 50 minutes. So we need something for those last 20 minutes that's still related to the learning that can go away, as well as the fact that every student is going to be working through the course in a different way and in a different time period. So you really don't need a lot of those filler activities for those that finish early or other things like that. Yeah, so I call them bookending. I, I call this a, a bookending approach because you've got the student who wants the bare path and then you want the student who needs extension. So you've got the student who really, I suppose like me to a certain extent, um, you know, do I want a bare path? No, I do want to do well, but I'm really, really busy and I need you to tell me exactly what I need to pass the assessment. I also need you to, to develop really authentic assessment tasks. So one of the things that I talk to our staff about is designing for keeping that very the core very simple. What do these students need and what is going to be benefit for them to do their assessment and achieve their learning outcomes, which are nice and refined and tight and you're really driving deep rather than shallow. So actually the student's working harder because roughly about 15% extra effort for definitely for faculty load, but also student. So time on task is really, really, uh, really important. And it's one of the biggest challenges we have, funnily enough, when we get new staff coming to work with us because we have in our self-paced courses we've sort of got a, a way to you know identify exactly how much time that's going to take to read and it might take one person half an hour but another person 45 minutes to read them and then how much is it going to take to do the summary that we've asked you to do and then the research on your assessment and we have this tendency in online particularly when we're just you know putting these links up it's like oh hi there everybody look have a look at all these links and actually if you sit down and look at all of those links man this is about 33 hours worth of work in there for a student and for that really keen student they're going to be looking at that going oh my god I've got to do all of that so it's about being that curator of their journey that is actually takes a lot of effort if you're going to do it really well and really great online design instructional design is very much a an, an, a curated journey for the student. So now that we have students who are not self-selecting into online courses, but are in fact being forced into them. Do you have any thoughts about ways to keep them keep them engaged when this hasn't been their choice? Uh, so the first thing I would, I would say is, I've said this a lot, is just we all need to be kind to one another and understand that for many people, it's really just, it's a new journey for us all. Starting the journey with a clear message about um, collaboration, being kind, we're doing the best we can. And then obviously do the best you can, but starting from a very clear position of communication and key messages. I'm a big fan of setting rules. You know, this is what's acceptable. This is what's not. We can't do anything about the circumstances that we're currently in. We are doing our best. If we don't do this, you don't get an education. And it really is that simple. But everyone comes in with trepidation. But if they have a good time, um, if you're engaging, if you ask them about themselves, make it student-centred. This is not about you standing and delivering to them for 45 minutes or overwhelming them with readings. This is about asking questions and finding ways to um, identify what they have learned, what can they contribute to the, to the classroom. And there are plenty of fantastic ways that we're able to do that these days. So, you know, I've, I've cited an example where I've spent eight hours online uh, with up to 70 students and we start at nine o'clock and finish at, say, three, running 45-minute sessions. And because of, you know, Zoom, which we use, is, um, you know, allows breakout rooms. So when you're 
you know, you send students away for 20 minutes to consider one question, then bring them back and they've all got three minutes to present as a group. So the group, the first session, person one presented, the second session, person two presented. So I can be online for eight hours and actually not do very much other than simply facilitate the learning and find opportunities for them to talk to one another and engage. And so that tends to bring out the students who uh, are a little bit reluctant and then incorporating things like self and peer assessment or, you know, asking students, well, how did everybody else go? Because it's very easy, just like in a normal face-to-face class, it's quite easy for students to hide and you don't want um, want to hide. But then also being kind to the student. There are some students who really are going to get extremely anxious and do not. They may have um, accessibility issues. They may have hearing reading issues that they may have. Uh, you might be working very pay, fast-paced in the online work, but they need more time to absorb. And ironically enough, those students tend to do quite well. A lot of them are now transitioning to distance education schools anyway because they're not doing so well in the, tra- in the mainstream. So um, distance does or online does allow you to cater for those students, but you have to be able to find ways to identify them. What would be a, a unit or a lesson that you're incredibly proud of? I love all of mine. I have to say I was really sad when I wasn't able to teach my speech and script class this week because my students, I, I, I recently won a teaching award for distance um, for my online teaching here in Australia and it was based on... Congratulations. Of, yeah, thanks. It was, but a lot of it was based on this, this course where I asked the students in week three, so it's an online only course and it's about speech and delivery and you know, broadcast talk, which is my research area or has been my research area. So it's always been challenging to teach and I've been teaching it for years and years. But in week three, I get them to read rhetoric um, because thank God love um, MIT. They have a, a classics online and the entire Aristotle's rhetoric is online. And I go say to the students, you know, go read that. It's the only task you have this week. It'll take you hours and hours and hours, but summarise it me because it's very important that um, you have an understanding as speakers of the original of rhetoric, you know, where it comes from, because we throw that term around everywhere, rhetoric. Well, my forum posts every single term talk about, you know, well, at what point was that an unreasonable task request? (laughs) And um, how dare you suggest that we could possibly do this um, because it's just way too big a task? I get a couple who go like, oh, my God, that was turgid, but how amazing is humanity that, um, you know, similar concepts back there are similar to now. So it's very eye-opening for them in a funny kind of way. And then I I capture in week nine, I get them to, because they keep a blog, which is how I keep track of them, a weekly blog, and I go in, I'm a big believer in social presence, so every couple of of hours every week I'll go in and just, you know, do some reading and commenting and and so on on what they're doing. And then I have an activity in week nine where they talk about, well, ask them, well, what activity overall this term have you learned the most from? And it's helped me continuously improve the course because, you know, they'll they'll turn around and go, well, I thought week four was pointless, you know, and if they all say that, then clearly they didn't learn something. But overwhelmingly the feedback I have from the rhetoric exercise because it's scaffolded. So, you know, I then ask them, you know, might maybe in week six to reflect back on, you know, the rhetorical strategies and then they have to write a maiden speech for parliament and they have to employ the strategies of rhetoric. And they come back and they say to me, oh, my God, that was just completely life-changing. And so, and that's been consistent feedback. So don't get the, 
the complaints anymore because I'm actually able to give them the feedback. I preempt the complaint. I say to them, you know, you're going to hit week three and hate my guts because you're going to have to read 49 chapters of, you know, 49,000 words of whatever it is of, of a, an ancient classic text. But this has been the feedback of previous students. And so overwhelmingly, then students at least they accept that it's hard and that it's going to be a challenge, but they're prepared for it. So they lean into it and they can see where it's going to be um, relevant at the end. And doing that, when you've got what I call um, bushfires happening in the online space, you know, they're all talking to one another on the discussion forum. How dare she set that? Oh, my God, it's way too hard. That can be very, very daunting for an academic, you know, and that's what happens. So, um, and for people, that's what, that's how staff, moving into this space, they lose confidence because the students suddenly have a voice to speak to other people in a semi-public way that they would never have been game to um, in class. They would never necessarily challenge this teacher for their particular teaching strategy. So a lot of the work that I do um, with staff is about building confidence, about setting very clear rules from engagement about preempting complaint when I talk about it so I wrote a book on time management for academics which was about this how to preempt the the complaints not that you want them but if you can foresee where your choke points are or where the problems are you might have said a particularly challenging reading that you know some of them are going to struggle to understand you know you can preempt that by putting some study guide discussion notes or creating an exemplar that's going to help them unpack their learning so that's all all really important you know and the amount of effort that goes into that's that's huge so that's probably the one that I am most proud of but you know I've done media writing when I started media writing you know we just wrote we sat in class we wrote on computers and we printed out a you know 240 word or 300 word very short news story that had five w's and h as a paragraph whereas now media writing is about twitter and twitter cues and rolling commentary so those courses, Introduction to Journalism, it's just been a massively changing space. And I think that's why I've just been so passionate about, uh, particularly regional here in Australia, um, I don't want to necessarily be teaching everybody within a metropolitan area. I want to be able to be helping people in, you know, places like Longreach, Outback Australia. I love that idea that there becomes a space where you are not just surrounded by people of usually the same age background, geographical area, that there's a, a learning space that's open to s- such a diversity of voices, which I feel in a lot of academic institutions is not usually the case. Oh, it's fantastic. I talk to teaching the fringes. If you design for the fringe, you do well for the centre. And the diversity, so that student who finds it more, most difficult to learn. And I was that student, I have to say. I, was a, I see it in my son too. So I needed everything to be just um, broken down into, you know, very clear, this is what you're going to do and this is why you're going to do it. Now, there are a lot of mature age students. There are students with anxiety. There are students with learning difficulty who might be in your class but who are particularly good at, you know, a particular thing that they want to do, such as graphic design or telling stories in my instance. And so if you're designing for them and you're making your everything you do in the classroom, the online classroom, really clear to them, well, then everyone else is going to be clear. And it really is that simple. So that diversity forces you to be, I think, a better teacher because you can't just make assumptions about everybody understanding 
And I find it also easier to monitor the class. There's always that dominant person in the classroom, just as there is a dominant person in a face-to-face classroom. There's a person who spends all day on the discussion forums because they don't perhaps have anything to do because they're maybe a mature age or they're out of work or, you know, taking a break versus the student who is a part-time person and only has a couple of hours a week to really dedicate to that social interaction. And really, um, for me, I just set very clear ground rules um, and then find ways to let the students communicate with one another if they feel they need that social interaction, um, you know, setting up the spaces for them to do that. But also they're not not, um, making that student who doesn't want to engage a failure because I think that's really important. It's really easy to set extremely high bars in online um, learning. That means that there's a very quick disengagement by the student, by someone who's just not um, uh, seeing themselves as your representation of what a perfect student in this classroom looks like. So making it very clear that that diversity is embraced and encouraged in this classroom. We've set this classroom up for to um, be suitable for a multiple um, personalities or personas, I suppose, and then making it really clear what your expectations are of the middle ground. And that might be rules of engagement, um, how you're going to communicate, um, how many Forum posts you may or may not be allowed to post or the ways in which you can communicate with others and also making it clear that we're not all the same. So I always say to my classroom, we're not all the same, you know, and um, just because someone irritates you doesn't mean anything other than you're irritated and that's probably more your problem than theirs. So unless unless it's unacceptable behaviour or, um, um, you know, something else, then, yeah, just setting those rules for how you expect people to communicate with one another is really important. I I spent some time reflecting. I'm not currently in the classroom teaching, but seeing all of this happening, uh, I've spent a lot of time reflecting about how I ideally would want to uh, put what I was teaching, which was a language, online. And one of the things that really struck me was how much as classroom teachers, there is that aspect of flying by the seat of your pants. Like you have your lesson outline and you know the key points that you're going to teach, but you also know that there's going to be interaction and things are going to go this way or that way. And there's that fluidity, whereas with online, it it really would force you to be very concrete, very succinct in a way that sometimes as teachers, we don't have to be. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that because I get a lot of feedback that people really like the energy of living, of, a, of being face-to-face in the classroom. And look, I do too, and I get that on my, online. It's funny, you know, so you can recreate that. It's just a different mindset. So, for example, you might have set your face-to-face class of reading and you know, unless you've assessed it, that there's a really good chance that maybe half the class are going to turn up and not have done that reading, right? And then what you do as a teacher is you tap dance. Right? So then you're adapting your practice right there in that moment to work out how am I going to get the students who haven't read to be able to respond to the questions that I'm now going to ask. Now, different teachers have different ways of, of doing that. Some set a, a class to try, uh, like a quiz at the beginning of a class to try and drive those students into reading it before they, you know, the flipped classroom sort of model. I make the assumption with an online class that that will happen. So... I therefore don't expect students to have done the reading before class. The class will be about a different concept. And if I expect them to turn up, it will be because it's assessed or because I've created a particular topic that I want to talk to them about. 
So I do a bit of a blend of flipped classroom, um, you know, guided journey, and it very much depends on the thing that you're teaching at any one point in time. So, for example, feature writing, I never gave an on- online lecture because, it, in my view, it was better for them to go be reading, be doing, and then get feedback. So we would have pitch sessions where they were talking back to me about what their um, ideas were and they would get feedback and that was a accessible accessible session and really high energy lots of discussion happening between students um, but media writing again you know it might be something completely different or speech writing it you did need to actually demonstrate um, you know good speech or clear speech so therefore it might be a case of assessing students so it's a different kind of energy and it's a different kind of preparation um, it is, and that's why it's harder. Like you do, in fact, as you say, there's parts of it do need to be concrete. You need to be really clear to the student about the onboarding of the student into a synchronous session if you are going to have one. If you're not going to have one and if it's all going to be clearly asynchronous, then what are going to be your milestones? How are you going to be tracking them? So it's it's about little ways of creating social presence. So for me, it might be taking a couple of hours every week that I might otherwise have delivered an online on-campus class or an online lecture that no one turned up to, which I then cancelled. And I think I talk about that in my blog um, where, you know, people just didn't turn up. So I converted that to different um, things where I might ring the students because two hours per week over 12 or 13 weeks is, what, 24 or 26 hours. And if you're only getting two or three students turning up, then maybe you're better off driving them into the assessment and then ringing them twice or three times a term. And if you've only got 60-odd students or 50-odd students in a class, well, that's actually the equivalent time and much more effective. And then you get the opportunity to talk to them about what exactly their their issues are and have that kind of one-on-one little like as though it was a classroom session at the end. So, um, you know, audio feedback is, is hugely successful for us where, you know, I talk to someone. So if I was marking your assignment, I'd be recording, you know, this is where you went wrong. This is what you think. This is how it could be improved. This is where you got me, particularly with feature writing. It's like, oh, you got me over here and then you lost me in paragraph four and, you know, why didn't you do this and perhaps you need to talk to that. So you can have really quite a long conversation. And that's the equivalent of thousands of words of feedback. Thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to me. You sound incredibly busy, but I I really appreciate your insights and and everything that you've learned. Oh, look, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a really, um, it is a very interesting time to be um, uh, doing what we're doing. I have to say it's probably the first time in my career that I've felt ahead of the curve, (laughs) which is um, is nice. But, yeah, look, thank you for the opportunity to talk. It's always lovely to talk about teaching, online teaching too. So there you have it. Be kind to yourself and your students as you begin a distance education journey. Identify the core learning outcomes of your course, find ways to reach out and connect with students, and be willing to ask learners to do big tasks if you know it'll ultimately pay off. In this episode, you may have heard the pitter-patter of pause, and you can find out more about my occasional unintentional co-host Shelby the dog, as well as information about previous episodes and links to relevant resources at lessonimpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please forward it to your friends and colleagues, as well as rating and reviewing it on iTunes.